Blue Wire. The Philadelphia 76ers select Joel Embiid, Ben Simmons. Here comes Simmons between the legs. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of the New Slant Podcast. It's our second attempt, but this is the first time you'll hear this. So, thankfully, you guys got to miss all that. With me, as always, now that his internet is working once again, my buddy, Seamus Clancy. Seamus, how are you doing this time? Uh, a lot worse than <laughs> 20 minutes ago, but I'm here. You know, we were talking about this was a uh, a rare podcast after a victory for Seamus and I all the good vibes were just heading our way and then I look up as I'm in the middle of a a minute long talking point and Seamus is no longer in the chat or in the uh the program that we record in and I just see a WTF text from Seamus who apparently was let down by the good folks at at Comcast so (laughs) The good vibes may have uh, evaporated for Seamus, but I'm going to try to to pick him up. So let's get going here, buddy. Yeah. <laughs> I can feel the enthusiasm. Okay, so we are recording on Monday, Martin Luther King Day. The Sixers had an afternoon matinee against the Brooklyn Nets, and it featured what I believe is probably – the best performance of Ben Simmons's career, a 34-point, 12-rebound, 12-assist, triple-double with five steals to add on on about 85% shooting from the field. Not that Ben is ever going to have like a a, a low-shooting night considering where he takes oh, most he, of his he attempts. Oh, he has. <laughs> yeah, but they're on like one for three or, or something ridiculous. Anyway, point being, Absolutely massive monster night from Ben and Seamus. I'm just curious what you think Ben's number one thing he did was on uh, on Monday afternoon because it was a, a great performance on both ends and and I, I want to know what stands out for you. We've consistently talked about how well he's played on defense this year. Uh, I'm in the camp that he certainly certainly uh, should be on the first team all defensive. Uh, selection, but I think he also has an outside chance at Defensive Player of the Year itself. And even though we talk about it all the time, the one thing I keep harping on when it comes to Ben is not his shot, not his jump shot. I, I really don't care about those at this point. I don't think they're ever going to happen, so I'm not wasting my breath or my mental energy complaining about it. But the one thing I think he needed to improve on most to change the kind of workings of the Sixers offense would be to be more aggressive in terms of getting to the rim and being a better foul shooter once he gets to the line because once he becomes a better foul shooter he'd be more likely to finish aggressively because I don't think he wants to go to the line if he's a poor foul shooter but the way he would take the ball coast to coast off rebounds in Brooklyn and finish strong dunking getting to the line he got the line 14 times made 10 of them for 70 percent flat uh, he's never done that before in contests where it wasn't some kind of absurd hack of Ben situation where he shot, you know, 29 against Washington a couple of years back, uh, 23 against Phoenix last year. But to be able to consistently get to the rim, actually finishing strong, dunking it and picking up fouls and getting the line and making it, it's a complete performance on every facet offensively and defensively. Uh, it's something we haven't seen from before in a Sixers uniform. 
Yeah, and I don't know if you're going to agree with this or not, Seamus, but I think a, a big reason I think he had that performance and was able to sustain that aggression is because they Brett Brown simply put the sort of personnel around Ben and used an offensive strategy that allowed Ben to be in that mode. Like when, so he played. He doesn't necessarily have to play center, and he did play small ball center for a good chunk of that second half. That was when the Sixers really made their run to get back into the game and take the lead when it looked like they, it was going to be yet another loss on the road in Brooklyn. But putting him on the floor next to Neto and Maz and Mike Scott spacing the floor and, and Thibel, it allowed Ben to just to simplify the game. He's catching these lobs and these entries from Neto and Maz when he's already – at the free throw line or lower. And when he gets to that point, there are only two things he can do. He's either making the quick pass to an open shooter in the corner, or he's going up to attack the rim. There's none of the, all right, I'm going to to pivot and I'm going to pass backwards and transition. I'm not going to do anything except for these two things. And that's when Ben looks like he's aggressive. And that's when we see the Ben that, that I think you and I and so many other people who follow this team want to see. He he has the the skills. He has the the physical traits, and it's a matter of connecting all of that mentally. And I think by allowing him to play a role that he would have more frequently played in college, and and even in some ways back when he was in high school, I think that's the way that they're going to get there. And so I don't know how they do that more often. I don't think certainly that it's sustainable to play him at small ball center when they're totally healthy because both Horford and Embiid need to play most of, if not all their minutes in in Embiid's case at center. But the key for Ben is just getting guys on the floor, whether that's Howell Neto, whether that's Trey Burke, whether that's somebody that they're going to pick up at the trade deadline, they need players who are going to make his life easier and less complicated on offense. Yeah. Howell Neto played like trash. But at the same time, having just someone out there who can dribble the ball opposite of Ben and have him work more so as a power forward. You know, a comp I used before was Draymond Green with the superhero soldier, uh, the super soldier serum. And him playing as a role man, I think, is what completely unlocks him offensively. And he can actually be a guy who could score 30, you know, from time to time offensively. And... I think Trey Burke is fine. He's a third point guard to me. He's a guy who's fine to put in spot minutes in the regular season. He's not a guy I want them, you know, battling against Milwaukee and Toronto and Miami with come April and May. They certainly need to upgrade that position, I think, as we'll get into later. That's probably their biggest deadline need. But just having someone out there who's kind of bad and netto, but has that skill set just exemplifies the fact that if he was working with someone who was even competent at doing that, it would do wonders for the Sixers' offense. Yeah, like Neto was fine as a table setter. He was awful as an attacker. One for seven, couldn't buy a bucket, and then was fine on defense. And so despite the fact that Neto couldn't hit water from a boat on Monday, they just kept surging and surging and surging, and eventually they take the lead. They sustain that lead in the fourth quarter, even in spite of Neto not playing well. And so, like – that underscores the point that they don't need some like big time high level player there. But if they had even a marginally better player, 
that which is not Trey Burke. Him and Neto are essentially two different versions of the same problem. But if they had a marginally better player who could play next to Ben and get the most out of him, you can see that it's worked recently when Josh Richardson is at the controls of the pick and roll. The more guys that they can get on this team that lift up Ben and then will also lift up Joel when when he returns the better off they're going to be because I think sometimes people get wrapped up in well this guy is helpful to these specific situations but look they just need guys who can dribble and shoot both of those things help Joel Embiid and Ben Simmons it's people forget that's important in basketball to have people (laughs) who can dribble the basketball and shoot and put the basketball into the rim right it's not rocket science if you can put the ball on the floor and space the floor, both of those guys will benefit. Joel posting up has a guy that he can kick out to that will make a three, or that guy can attack the closeout that comes. Somebody that can run pick and roll with Ben or stand in the corner and make an open three. Like These are not exactly complicated skill sets or, or ones that guys all around the basketball world don't have. And so it just seems strange that there hasn't been more of an emphasis on bringing those kind of guys in, but – if today was not an indication to Elton Brand and the rest of the front office, and even to Brett Brown to to play more around that skill set, then I don't know how much clearer of a message they're going to need. Do you think Neto's uniform looks too big for him? Uh, I think his shorts do at times. I don't I that's think the, it's uh, more so the shorts. Yeah, yeah. I don't think like his torso. It looks fine, but I yeah, it looks like he's like even smaller than he already is. Uh, I, I do think he played pretty well defensively. Like he didn't make any kind of highlight plays the way Dybul and Simmons did, but but that it, like people get so worked up about the Neto Burke stuff. Neither one of those guys is good enough to justify yeah, injuring like, deck chairs and a Titanic. But neither yeah. guy is very good. But no one, neither I one of those Burke's, guys is worth getting. I think like, caring that much. A, a little okay, but not really actually. So like I said, I don't want him playing in the. I don't want either guy sniffing the floor come the postseason. They're bo- they're both towel weavers to me. So circling back on Ben for a second, I think one thing I don't want to get lost in the shuffle as we talk about is his offensive performance in Brooklyn is the fact that he was as good as he was on defense while he was carrying that huge burden, that huge load on offense. And I I think one thing that you and I have consistently said is that that's been our, 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 our thing that we're impressed with the most with Ben this year, that his commitment is there almost every minute of every game on defense and that he's really lived up to his preseason claim of wanting to be the defensive player of the year and the best defensive player on the team. And I'm going to make one observation for you, Seamus, with Matisse Thibel out there in the second half of the Brooklyn game and the influence that those two had just shutting Brooklyn down and for like minutes at a time where Brooklyn couldn't throw a pass in either one of their directions, where one guy's playing the free safety role as the other is playing lockdown, man-on-man, one-on-one defense, it really made me rethink my stance of whether Matisse is going to be able to play crunch time and playoff games over one of the starters, presumably Horford, because I think if you put Joel Embiid on the floor instead of Horford there, and then you have those other four assumed starters or crunch time guys out there, they can just absolutely kill teams at any time and and suffocate them for a long time. You have four good defenders 
on the floor, a two that are excellent perimeter disruptors, and then Joel Embiid protecting the rim. That is a uh, a tough combination to beat. I know Al played pretty well today, and you know saved himself from some double agent slander, given how <laughs> much I've been trashing him over the last several weeks, months, whatever you want to say. But would you consider starting Matisse over Al, or is that something that do you think the team cares too much about the optics surrounding that, or do you think it would need to be something catastrophic where you know Horford had to get hurt first, and then they just started playing Thibel there, and he needed just did well there and then they just left Al on the bench once he returned to injury do you think it means something like that do you think Brett kind of has the stones to bench Al if it becomes abundantly clear that the move is to start Matisse and as well as finish the game with Matisse I think it would be less about optics than it is an understanding of the impact that might have on like in the locker room where like Horford as much as everyone is like he's a team first guy who does all the little things it's not like he doesn't have an ego and it's not like he wouldn't have any sort of reaction to saying, Hey, you're getting benched in favor of a rookie. And obviously Brett Brown has firsthand experience of, of being in San Antonio and watching Manu Ginobili accept that role as like a six man super sub type guy that would play in those crunch time minutes. And I think that's sort of the problem with this is like, if you bench Horford, it's not even, it's not necessarily to, to supercharge the second unit it's because Thibault you believe is a better fit and Thibault is the guy that you might want to play in crunch time minutes and I think that might be a harder sell than it would have been to a Ginobili in San Antonio on top of the fact that look as much as I still think there's uh, more to be found with Horford in Philadelphia and they haven't untapped his potential here yet I just don't think he's the sort of guy that is going to supercharge the the second unit. That's never been who he is. He's a guy who he does all the little things that add up over the course of a lot of minutes of a game. And the one advantage of having Thibel in the bench role is that he comes off the bench and it's like a a guy being shot out of a cannon. Yeah, it's the same. It's been the same effect with even though I think. Norval Pell and his contributions have been a little bit overrated in terms of helping them win. The fact that they have a couple guys coming off the bench that they just have all this untapped energy that is lifting up a group of of entrenched starters, of veteran guys to a certain extent that knows like, hey, their measuring stick is the playoffs and winning a championship, not how they're playing in a a mid-January game in Brooklyn. Yeah, let me paint you a picture in terms of the energy off the bench. Say it's game one of the Eastern Conference quarterfinals. The Sixers are at home playing against, I don't know, just say this Nets team. And Sixers are down by eight early, and Brett Brown goes to his bench. He brings in Al Horford. How excited is the arena to have Al Horford flying around like a maniac out there, which he has <laughs> never done once in his life. Yeah, that's, as a, it's not his As game. opposed to Matisse coming in there and looking like a rocket on defense, jumping everywhere, f- jumping past the lanes, going coast to coast, throwing down some slams from maybe a Ben alley-oop to get the crowd into it. As much as I kind of want to trash Al and say it'd be cool if Matisse took his job, not literally took his job, but just his <laughs> starting, because that sounds kind of fucked up. I just yeah, meant, that sounds awful. <laughs> yeah, like just meant taking his starting position on the team. But I do like the energy aspect 
of what he brings off the bench. And I think that's something that's unquantifiable in terms of, or something we underrate in this sense, in this sort of, you know, analytically inclined environment that, you know, basketball Twitter exists in, is that I think having Matisse as your energy guy, as your true six man, as your guy who's going to get the entire crowd back into a game, who's going to throw down one slam dunk that makes the opposing team call a timeout and reassess things, that's huge. Yeah, and I will say, I think it's a little trickier with Matisse with Joel out there versus Horford as the center because Matisse basically can't dribble at all. And while I know Joel is a, a great offensive player and a guy that they turn they throw the ball to in the post and ask him to, to dominate a lot of times, he certainly doesn't have the handle that Horford does, even though Horford is not the best handler himself. Like there are there are types of defenses that they would be exposed against. Like we've seen the uh I mean it's like Covington, those teams. Yeah, like the full court trapping stuff that Toronto threw at them late in the. Oh my god! I have to do that on Wednesday. What the? They would be a uh, that would potentially be a nightmare with Thibault in there instead of like there are some some smaller things to worry about. But I do think it's something that they're going to have to look at it at some point, especially because even though I made the case for energy and you painted a great picture of of why you want someone like Thibault in that role versus Horford, there's just as good a case to be made that if it's just a cleaner fit and the the pieces work better because of how they're just on the court together, that's if you have a better lineup and a better team on the floor, I think that is just as important, if not more important than some uh, vague concept like energy coming off the bench. Like if their starting lineup just kicks everybody's ass, the rest of that stuff doesn't really matter. Oh yeah, I mean I'm not saying that they have to keep Thibault as a bench, but just in the sense we were talking about what it means to be a guy off the bench and what kind of impact it can have. Uh, Thibault is obviously superior there, but at the same time, he's superior there because he's quite good and he's fantastic on defense, and that might necessitate him actually starting at some point. So let's stay on Horford for a second, because as much as we're saying, hey, they might need to bench him down the line, I he thought fantastic. he played excellent. Yeah, he was great against Brooklyn, although... All-around game. All-around game. We should note that over the weekend when they played the Knicks, he had uh, just a horrific game, couldn't make a shot, and... He stinks. <laughs> it's... It's, it's so extreme with him where uh, against Chicago where they played that blitzing, hard hedging strategy on Friday, Horford did great because that's the sort of matchup that like when he gets four on three opportunities or you're just giving him open mid-range shots over and over again, that's an environment in which he thrives. And I, I want to bring up one thing. I think schematically the one bone I have to pick with Brett Brown and, and the Sixers in general with with Horford out there, which they have tweaked a little bit, is the fact that they had him for long stretches of this year just sitting way too far back and playing that same what they call center field coverage against pick and rolls where Joel Embiid is athletic enough and long enough that if you ask him to to spring up out of a, a dead stance, he's able to do it and impact shots, impact lobs, and guys can't get get over on him. Whereas with Horford, if you have him standing flat-footed, dropping back, 
he doesn't have the explosiveness or the length to contest a lot of these looks that teams get at the rim. And so what I think they have to do, which they've done more lately but not enough, is they have to bring him up and they have to use his agility and his strength and say, look, if you want to try to get switches against Horford, good luck. We're going to take our chances. And against Brooklyn, they did that a lot. And Horford rewarded them by playing some great individual defense when he's on guys like a Spencer Dinwiddie, like a Karis LeVert. He's capable of doing that stuff. And so if they're going to get the most out of Horford the rest of the year, they have to treat him as if he is his own entity, as if he is Al Horford, and not just try to ask him to be smaller Joel Embiid. So you're saying they signed a $109 million situational player? <laughs> no, I'm not saying that at all. I'm saying he's the sort of guy that they need to devise a different kind of plan for. And because he's the insurance, the expensive insurance plan, it would behoove them, it would behoove Brett Brown to try to get the most out of that insurance policy. I will say, despite all of my Horford slander, is that I think he will be better in the playoffs. I think his skill set, uh, his experience works best against those playoff teams like Milwaukee. Uh, he's someone who just as recently as Christmas Day played phenomenally defensively against Giannis and the Bucks, And something, it's a team and a player he's had success against his entire career. And it's a little one-track minded, but every move kind of has to be made with in the thought process of, does this get you one step closer to beating Milwaukee in May? And... As much as I chittle now, I think his presence does that. Well, and here's the other thing. I have to believe that his shooting is going to turn around at some point. The looks that he's getting that he's not making are great shots. Like Most of the time, he's not even being covered out there. And while you can say that that's a product of how poorly he has shot this year. Yeah, he's at 32.4% from deep right now, which is his lowest since... 2015 and his field goal percentage is at 44.8 which would be the lowest of his career not saying these numbers are going to be consistent like that obviously i think there's some luck coming his way some positive regression and yeah yeah i i just i tend to believe that at some point he's going to start making some of these and then that will like if he makes more threes the the questions about fit and does this all work are going to fade a little bit because he is a, a guy that that can figure out how to make things work. He's a good passer. He's got all sorts of skills on offense. He's a smart, tough defender that if you use him correctly. I tend to believe it's going to turn the corner at some point. Certainly hasn't looked like that at times this year, but I guess I just – I am slower to make declarations of someone being done or whatever than a lot of people. And so I guess I just refuse to believe that we've seen the last of Al Horford as like a high level starting type player, because we still see flashes of it. It just so happens that we don't see them as much as maybe people would have wanted. So in our group chat today, we have a group chat, Kyle and I with Wesley Sharon, and Jake Pavorsky. And it became known, it was brought to my attention that Al's real name is Alfred. I love it. Well, so did you know that Joel is Batman, Ben is Robin, and Alfred is the Butler. What if we start calling Alfredo Fredo Horford? 
No, we can't. That's that's terrible. I love it. It's no, because that just made Fredo just makes you think of the Godfather. I know. On basketball reference, it says his nickname is the Godfather, which no one has ever called him before. But we'll let them cook. Well, that. But it's. I just. I don't. I can't do it. There's no way. Fredo. No way. I'm ever. Don't get on the boat. <laughs> do not get on the boat. Don't get on the boat, Al. Land the plane. Oh. Dock the boat. Oh my God! Uh, we could go on a whole Godfather wormhole, but instead, there is another recent, not necessarily Sixers topic, Seamus, that we could discuss. Friend of the pod, perhaps enemy of the pod, depending on how you look at it. Mark Fultz. <laughs> Mark Fultz is a friend of the pod. Mark <laughs> Fultz is an enemy of the pod. <laughs> well, it depends on. He's not an enemy of mine, but you know, I don't. I don't I know like, how you... I like Mark. I don't like Markel. Okay. Well, so, as I'm sure a lot of people have seen recently, Markel Fultz is in a bit of an upswing uh, with Orlando. I, I think the standout performance was the, the 20... Uh, was it 21 point? You had a triple-double. Triple Correct. Against the Lakers. And that, like, very, very slow spin move that people went wild over. So, listen, I'm not going to slander him in the way Seamus is. I think he played a terrific game against the Lakers. I think he's had some other awesome games. At points this season, he certainly has not been – like there are all these redemption arcs being written by hacky columnists and and all that. And I'm not going to say, well, he's looking like he's the – number one pick again because that certainly is not the case for guys averaging like 11 points a game on a a pretty crappy magic team but i'm more concerned with the fact that there's some revisionist history going around with with markel which seamus i'm sure you've seen some of this too there have been people claiming like though everyone hated on markel nobody believed in him what it's like the same vein as watch how they switch sides and it's i think it was slam magazine said elite mental toughness like no mark held they dead ass try to break mark fultz mentally or something like that and he's got the he's got the receipts and and seamus you could speak to this more than i can because i've been covering the team versus rooting for them but on my end of things it certainly seemed like at least locally that the amount of love that Markel got for his playing career in Philadelphia inexplicably was dispropor- wildly disproportionate to the production that he showed. And I don't think I've ever seen an athlete in Philadelphia receive the love that he did while producing as little as he did. It was almost demeaning. Like it came off. I agree as, with you. Yeah. It, like in retrospect, uh, it feels like almost it's weird to say like a make a wish thing where like, Oh, come on, Mark, you can do it. You can do it. And it was just like, I was there rooting for him too. The famous game everyone points out to is the last game in the 2018 season against the bucks. He has a triple double in the last game of the season. And the whole crowd is doing the faults, faults, faults chant. Like people did the Nick Foles, Foles, Foles chant to make fun of the Viking skull chant and the NFC championship game. There we were, I was there. I was doing it. I'm not, you know, doing some kind of straw man. I was a part of this. I cheered for this dude hard as hell. We were equating him just stepping on a court and playing basketball to the greatest performance ever by a Philadelphia athlete in the city of Philadelphia. Like, we wanted him to succeed that badly. We were like, 
there couldn't have been more encouragement. And even that season when he had played in the second half of the season, I think his he had a 69-game absence, which, low, nice. And then he came back in March and started playing again. Uh, I was at his first game back, and, you know, if he just went on the court when he first subbed in, standing ovation, I was a part of it. Takes a shot. Roof blows off. If he actually scored... People went berserk. We've got a rebound, assist. Everyone was just like box score watching him. Like, oh, he got a, he got a steal. He got an assist. He got a rebound. And I was a part of it. Everyone wanted every little thing to go right for him. Everyone was in his corner. And then he quit. <laughs> Brett Brown, the following fall, so this is fall 2018, Brett Brown puts Markel Fultz in the starting lineup to kick off the year. Puts J.J. Redick to the bench. After the lineup of Ben, J.J., Covington, Dario, and Embiid pro- produced one of the highest offensive ratings in league history in the regular season. And they actively made their team worse just to help him move along, to give him some confidence, to boost his morale, to see what he has, to see if he can play alongside Ben and Joe in this environment with a team that has some sense of expectations. And he did poorly, and they kept playing him. And then eventually they dropped him from the starting lineup and they had him a, uh, gave him a place in the rotation off the bench. And eventually, when that was not working, when he wasn't doing well, they put TJ McConnell in for him. In the middle of a game, as it happens with basketball, people forget if you're on the court, you get taken off. Brett Brown put in TJ McConnell for Mark Fultz. Fultz came off the court and then never played again. He quit. He said, you just took me out of lineup for TJ McConnell. Guess what? I don't feel like playing anymore. We did everything what you wanted. We could have possibly done to support him, literally above and beyond to like this demeaning level where it's almost like it's awkward and uncomfortable, and it feels wrong in a way. The way we were celebrating everything he did, it As felt if we were, like they we were let... like making fun of him almost in a way. Well, it, it it's like it, have you ever seen a high level college basketball program on senior day where they let like, yeah, the it's exactly they had like play. the the fucking like. It's the like the white kid from the middle of nowhere who is just sitting on the bench for four years. And yeah, like the basketball in. manager who like does rebounds. They gave him like a sh- like a practice shorts and a jersey to throw, and he like took a three at the end of the game and made it. And you know, it's like they won. They upset Duke at home or something, right? Like, ex- yeah, it's it was demeaning, but at the same time, like there was authenticity. The way people wanted him to succeed, I wanted him to succeed. No one wanted him to fail when he was in Philadelphia. Yeah, he was terrible. He was terrible at basketball, and people were okay with him being on the floor because they cared so much about his journey. They cared about what had happened to him, whether we don't even know what it is, but it seems like something seemingly went wrong with him. And we were supportive of it. He literally didn't play in his rookie season for 69 games for non—I'll nice. say— Real energy, real injury reasons. I, I, I don't buy into it. That's a whole different discussion. The shoulder injuries, the psychosomatic nature of them, the thoracic outlet syndromes. You know that whole deal. But at the same time, everyone was supporting him. I was supporting him. We were getting roasted on Twitter by every other fan base for giving up extra picks to trade up for this guy who's a complete zero. But at the same time, we still held strong. We still held, held up belief. That it could be that guy we all imagined he'd be back in May, June 2017. And then one yeah. day he said, I quit <laughs> on you guys. And he left and he never came the fuck back. So I don't care anymore. No one gave up on him. No one shit on him. He gave up on us. Fuck off. 
Wow. Now that was just a... <laughs> you just kept going and going, Seamus. I just had to sit back and stay I did a whole for the ride. On Friday like a whole from, podcast. On Friday for my newsletter, I did this, like, I wrote about him in the morning. I do, like, one main topic every day in the newsletter. Yeah. Like, if it's a Sixers game, I do, like, a couple, like, bullet points on, like, the Sixers, whatever. But Friday, some days with the Sixers don't play the night before, or the Eagles aren't, aren't in season now, I just kind of have to make things up. I'm like, I can't take these full streets. And I just started writing. I'm, I'm thinking I'm going to write, like, five, 600 words about this. I wrote 1,500 words about that whole, <laughs> and, like, I'm in, I work from home, so I was in my kitchen typing, and then, like, every... 150 words i would get up and like pace around that the living room like i can't fucking believe that happened i can't fucking believe that and just would come back around and then type another 200 words well here's the other thing like you gave the person that was the perfect perspective on the fan point of view now here's the other thing that i think we need that everybody needs to keep in mind markel fultz was not going to have this kind of year like he's having in Orlando in Philadelphia. And Absolutely. You want to know why? Because number one, all of the the negatives about this season, the games where he has six points and he's like two for ten from the field, which he's had many of those games in an Orlando Magic uniform. Do not let the rest of the games distract you from that fact. Those sort of games were going to receive an undue amount of attention, rightly or wrongly, because his fit with Ben Simmons and with Joel Embiid, because he can't shoot, is problematic. And so the focus would have been, hey, they drafted this kid, they traded up to draft this kid number one overall, and even after all the recovery, all the rehab, all this stuff, Markel, the last I checked, I would have to look right now to see the exact number, is shooting something like 26% from three. Now, it's worth noting, he's improved as a free throw shooter. That's a very important step for him. He's taking more shots as a three-point shooter. A very important step for him. But the fact that teams feel comfortable leaving him alone out there would have amplified all the same things that went wrong when he was on the floor with those guys last year. It's the reason that Brett Brown decided to go to TJ McConnell in that game that ended up being the last game that Markel Fultz played in a Sixers uniform, all the lows would have been felt a lot more. And I think something that's been lost, that it was a very good thing for Markel to go to a lower profile team somewhere where he doesn't have the expectations of being the number one pick. He's just a guy making around $10 million a year who's a starting point guard for a mediocre basketball team. And all his upward trajectory can be put in within the context of that. He doesn't have to be a high-level player on a high-level team trying to compete for a championship. It was the best possible situation he could go to. There's like one or two writers slash reporters who covered the team down there. When they lose, it's not a talking point on first take. There's no highlights on the jump on ESPN. There's not a Colin Coward segment on whether the Sixers should trade Markel Fultz or Ben Simmons or, or Joel Embiid or the Magic should trade Nikola Vucevic. That doesn't happen. No, Nobody cares enough about the Magic to care about when he has these down moments. And so I, for one, someone who I was as close to this subject as anybody possibly could have been as a reporter – I am thrilled for him that he's in a situation where people can see the positives for what they are and they can look at this thing more objectively and through this lens where there's not all this pressure on him to perform at a high level and he can be 
a 21-year-old kid who's trying to figure things out in the NBA. I I am thrilled that that's the case. But this idea that, if they, oh, they should have kept him here and this would have been possible for him to have the exact season that he's having in Orlando here, I, I genuinely do not believe that. And I think it was for the best of both parties that they moved on. The one thing I will say, the trade value they got for him was not good. And if they had simply made the trade they made for Terrence Ross instead of Jonathan Simmons. How do you know they wanted to do that? That was on the table, though. Well, that was the thing that other people had reported. Where I, I don't remember who reported it at the deadline, that they had an option between they could get Ross and I don't remember if it was like a second or maybe no pick or Jonathan Simmons and the basically a fake first from Oklahoma City. It might convey. It might convey, but probably not, but there's a chance. So the point is that was their choice. And to me, the decision was you if you're all in and they were all in last year, you have to really go all in. And Terrence Ross is a considerably better player, would have been a huge piece on that bench rotation last year. Would have helped them offset the loss of Landry Shamit, which I think people didn't really think about when they made that trade, but was a very important bench weapon for the Sixers last year before the Tobias Harris trade. Then maybe nobody's really thinking about this because perhaps the Sixers are defending champions this year and we're in a whole different timeline. But the point is, it was for the best interest of everyone involved to get Markel out of there and to a place where he can be who he is and... I am happy for him, and I don't really need to spend any more time talking about it than that. So you're saying even on his way out, he cost the Sixers yet another chance at winning the championship by not getting Terrence Ross in return. <laughs> no, Markel Fultz did not execute the trade, so I do not hold him responsible for any failings in the on the front office side. If a publisher came to you and said, would you like to write an oral history say six, seven years down the line, of the Markel Fultz saga. And I am biased, but I would say no one else is more qualified to do this than our own Kyle Newbeck. Would you do it? Yeah, I would do it. Because I think that's something that people want to know as much about as they can. Now, I don't think that's a thing that's ever going to happen. But, you know, stranger things have happened, I suppose. What The last thing I'll say is that I... I wish Markel the best of luck, and I hope he continues to have a, a productive career, whether that's in Orlando or or anywhere else. I plead the fifth. <laughs> so while we're on the subject of backup guards, there was a trade rumor that, that came out, uh, I want to say like almost right as the Sixers game was ending on Monday, that they are allegedly interested in – Derrick Rose so obviously no controversies in Derrick Rose's life that anybody would have to grapple with so it seems like a no-brainer Seamus but on a serious note how would you feel about rooting for Derrick Rose I I don't know if everybody knows about his uh his legal situation that he went through I think it was four years ago now he was on trial or it was a lawsuit. It was a civil lawsuit over sexual assault that he was found not liable, all things considered, but there were some ugly quotes, some ugly things that came out of there. And I think something that Sixers fans haven't had to grapple with, really Philadelphia fans in general, there haven't been a lot of like 
guys with checkered histories on the personal side before the social years. media area i think a lot of guys would have gotten way more flack and would have been way more controversial than they were now the brett myers the, the phillies won a super one the phillies won the world series the brett myers wow the phillies had. won a super bowl that'd be impressive that'd be wild uh ryan howard tight ends no uh, but other than like oduble herrera recently i mean I, people don't need like to talk about iverson yeah, I mean, he certainly was not uh, always on the up and up in, in terms of his off the court. Yeah, but do, do I want to write for, root for Derrick Rose? No, like if if they say in this scenario they traded for Rose, he did pretty well off the bench. They won the championship. Would I be mad the Sixers won the championship just because Derrick Rose was on the roster? Of course not. No, but do I actually want to root for him? Do I want to see him have the ball in his hand and he does this? You know, a great alley oop to Joel Embiid in a playoff game or has some emphatic dump or pulls up from three and has a great shot. Like, no, I don't want him to be that guy. I want someone to Did make Did you say shots. an emphatic dump? Dunk. <laughs> it sounded like at, an emphatic just, dump. That's a totally different story. Yeah, it I, I definitely do not want to see Derrick Rose take an emphatic dump. I'll which players that. around the league would you like to see take an emphatic dump? None. Zero. <laughs> Hello Neto with his outrageously big shorts. Maybe. <laughs> oh my God. Uh, well, so let me talk... So. You don't want to root for him. No, I will say on the. I don't think he, side, is he like that good to warrant any of the bullshit that's going to come when he's here. Like I don't even. Well, let's save even, that for a second. I've had a problem on the media side of this weird redemptive. Yeah, it's bullshit. Derek Rose, where like he has been relatively healthy for a couple years now. And there have been some just absolutely wild claims from media. Like, and granted, this was from the, the pistons.com writer. So take it for what it's worth. But somebody compared Derrick Rose needing to be in this year's All Star game because it's being played in Chicago to Magic Johnson needing to be in the 1992 All Star game after we learned that he was HIV positive, which is maybe the single dumbest fucking thing i've ever heard in my life well did you hear Kyrie's mlk comments well that <laughs> also very dumb it's the real meeting of the mensa right now yeah but comparing those two things absolutely outrageous and there are certain reporters that have been and border let's, carriers let's be blunt about it they're people who live strictly on access who who want to break stories they want to be friends with the players of bullshit transactions and have guys on their podcasts and and climb the ladder that way that they write these things like they refer to him as detroit pistons star derrick rose and they talk about oh what a great comeback story this is and they say that without having any consideration for the ugliness of his off the court stuff that came out and and the fact that like look at it this way he's on a pistons team that sucks and he's a he's six been, man he's, he's a been, good start he's been good this year and even in chris haynes's report that the sixers were interested in him Derek Rose allegedly, according to sources, is like telling the Pistons, oh, I need a bigger role. It's like, well, you're in a pretty big role right now and the team fucking blows. So maybe the problem is that you shouldn't be in a, as big a role as you're in and you have your limitations as a basketball player. And so that that brings us to the on-court fit and, and what he would do in Philadelphia. I think there's a case to be made that he could be a souped-up version of what we saw Neto do in that Brooklyn game with Ben Simmons but the problem with that is to get that version of Rose who's going to lift up Ben Simmons and, and supercharge those units 
you basically have to restructure the rotation so that you're bringing in a backup point guard when Joel Embiid and Josh Richardson are being subbed out at around the seven minute mark. And so that turns into a, a question of, okay, who's not getting those minutes now? Are you going to not play Matisse Thibel? Are you going to not play Furkan Korkmaz until later, who's been great recently, is in like one of the best stretches that he's ever had as an NBA player and has found real chemistry with Ben Simmons? Kyle, what's up with Ennis? Why don't they play him? What's wrong? I'm a little confused about that. I think he should be Do playing some over... I've asked about why he's not playing, and I think they Do want to get... Job. I have asked, and it's they've wanted to get Thibel and Korkmaz minutes. It, it, to me, it should be whether he should play over Mike Scott. And correct. That's, that's exactly no question what, that's to exactly me. exactly what it should be. So that's a, But that's a different story. So if Derrick Rose isn't coming in instead of one of those wings, now you're in a situation where he comes in around the, the two, three-minute mark of the first and third quarters, and he's playing that stretch from the first to the second and the third to the fourth with Joel and the lineups are structured around Joel Embiid. Are you getting max value out of a Derrick Rose acquisition if he's coming in only in those scenarios when he can't he's not a good shooter. I believe this year he's at like 31 or 32% from 3. He's 31.18 and he's not historically he's historically he's a below average three-point shooter. Right. Last year in Minnesota, guy. I believe he shot 37 and Correct. I think that was a career year. Correct. But over the course of his career that's never been a strength of his. So Correct. are you getting much value out of Derrick Rose if he's just in that role rather than totally changing the rotation and who plays to get this sixth man type guy into the rotation. I would argue no. And so then that makes me say, well, then how do you construct a trade that value-wise makes sense for him? I don't know that it's there. Well, you know, there aren't enough debates on Sixers Twitter, so we could always welcome a malcontent and someone with plenty of baggage like Derek Rose to the rotation. <laughs> we won't miss a beat. Yeah, I mean, the the one thing that we need in Philadelphia is something else to argue about and a Brett Brown rotation for people to be mad about. So in, in that sense, he would fit right at home. But I just – I don't know. I, I think if they're going to make a trade with Detroit, Luke Kennard is definitely the, the best guy that they could get from that team. But I don't know why – Detroit would be inclined to trade him as he's in the midst of a re they are in the midst of potentially rebuilding. So this is kind of a more broader question I have for you as a reporter. How do reporters handle dealing with players like that? Like say, you know, they trade for Derek Rose, they give up whatever. And either Elton Brand or Brett Brown is discussing that in some kind of press conference the day after the trade deadline, like more likely Elton Brand. Would you envision a reporter asking about acquiring a player with an off-the-court history like that? Or even would you yourself do that at the risk of alienating yourself from the team or coverage or getting the team's bad graces? Is that something that happens? Do you think it doesn't happen enough that reporters don't speak up? It probably doesn't happen enough. I don't really know what the right line to It's never really is, happened right? to a team that you've covered. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, and the other thing is like, I am always at a – and I have less information than the teams are dealing with and certainly that than the courts we're dealing with and, and so on and so forth. Like, I'll, all I, like what I make my judgments on are the ugliness of the quotes that make their way 
to the public. And so that's why I am a, a sports reporter and not like a, a crime reporter or somebody who's covering the Derrick Rose trial. And that I think has been the difficulty of maybe like compartmentalizing this in the way that we should, because the people who are asked to to speak up on this and like ask Derek Rose about this, this is not something that any of us deal with on a regular basis. Like most of the people who are covering basketball, we don't talk to sexual assault victims on a regular basis. And we, we're not knocking on doors and doing all that stuff. And, and so maybe that's a limitation of mine that, that I have to fix. And, but I certainly think like it's, that's absolutely a question that deserves to be asked because as we've already established for you as a fan and for many other fans, I think a lot of fans would be way more vocal than I am about it. Even if, even though I'm, you know, staunchly anti Derek, uh, I think people would be even more rabid about it than I am. Right. There are people who will say they don't want to root for a team that employs him. And like, I, I'm in no position to say that's wrong or right. Like everyone, I think it's justified to feel that way. I'm sure there are people out there that think like there's always the undercurrent of people who believe, well, if a a famous person gets accused of this, it's someone looking for money and and all that stuff. And I don't like humoring all that shit, but there will be. Yeah, so like there will be that undercurrent of people. I think my part in this is I am not going to amplify any player's story, especially one as a redemptive arc. When you consider what he did, what he was accused of, I should say. Um, And I will just leave it at that. Okay. I appreciate you answering candidly to a question we did not discuss ahead of time. Uh, Something I just thought of now, and I think Kyle handled his answer you know, is about as well thought out as someone could being asked something like this off the cuff. So no, thank you, I Kyle. Mean, look, no, I, think, I, yeah, I think, think you gave a really good answer. Well, and here's the thing. I think p- the problem that I have, and I'm sure a lot of people have, is that there are two different things here. Like if you want to say Derek Rose has a great redemption arc, you you essentially are wiping your hands clean of talking about that stuff. And so I can sit here and say, Hey, if we are strictly looking at this from a basketball perspective and you look at Derrick Rose suffering these injuries, like repeated injuries and having these issues with staying healthy, if that was the only thing that we were considering, then sure, great redemption arc that he's had. But you can't separate a a basketball player from who they are as a person. As it relates to his trade value and and how the Sixers would get him, I don't think any of that stuff has – like absolutely any impact on that, but that's not what we're discussing here. We're talking about fan base reaction and, and how I would cover it and how people react to it. And so I think it's it's pretty true that it would be it would be interesting to see how the different arms of Sixers fandom and Sixers media would respond to something like this. Yeah, I can't see uh you know Mike Scott Hive Sixers Twitter being quite happy with this. No, I, I, I don't imagine they would be. I don't say that so, as a, as a slight against them or anything. No. I'm just saying they're people who are already quite vocal about the situation. And so on that note, we move on to the most important segment of every <laughs> podcast, Seamus. Loser of the week. Who is it this week? So there's two people I thought of. This person isn't going to win in my eyes, but it was David Locke who started the Locked On Sports Podcast Network, which, good for you, but he is a jazz, he's a jazz writer who... He's a jazz fan masquerading as a jazz writer, I'm sure. 
Uh, he said Rudy Gobert had like a quadruple or quintuple double or something the other night because he had like 15 screen assist or contested shots too or something like that, which is just the most insane bullshit. Just Utah media smelling themselves uh, being the little <laughs> guy. And like, why doesn't anyone follow us or like guns? Why isn't Rudy Gobert a top five player? Like all that stuff. But even more so than that, the loser of the week in my book is an old friend who now has me and several prominent members of Sixers Twitter blocked on the network. Drew Corgan. Wow. Oh, wow. Oh. Drew Corgan has Twitter Aaron. smoke. Smoke, who I believe now works for the worldwide leader. Am I correct in saying that? Uh, I believe so. I think he made the move with uh, that Omar guy from the House of Highlights. Literally. So I do want to say congratulations to Drew on moving well, on up in the world. Well, Drew, no, look, watch how they switch sides, Drew. Look at you. You switch sides. I have no animosity for Drew. This is all person. me. This isn't Kyle. I, but, I don't know Drew well as a person. So but, I know why Seamus brings this up. There was a tweet earlier this week where Drew said something to the effect of the 10 and 72 Sixers are more fun than this year's Sixers. And let me tell you, as and Seamus is coming from the same perspective – as somebody who watched and wrote extensively about that 10 and 72 Sixers team, there is not a fucking chance in the world that that team was more fun than this one. Because if you remember the passionate, heated debates that were had over Jaleel Okafor and Nerlens Noel alone, that was one of the dumbest and most miserable seasons of professional sports that anybody could ever hope to go through. And I don't say this to just make fun of Drew for uh, what I thought was a bad tweet. There were lots of people that jumped people on. People agreed with, with them. All these people, like, what kind of loser mentality do you have to have to believe a season that started with some, like, actual expectations? Hey, maybe this will be fun. Maybe Okafor will exceed expectations. And ended with him punching Boston fans and getting caught speeding and having a gun pulled on him in Old City. Like... Jerry Colangelo taking over the team, oh Sam Hickey God. resigning. Do Me I need to go through on all of it? If you want to, if you want to say it was eventful, certainly that's the case. That is one of the worst seasons in the history of professional sports, and anybody, anybody who thinks that that was more fun than this current Sixers team needs to see someone and talk out their feelings because that is just an outrageous belief. Bro, that was – I almost stopped writing about sports during that season. I, I think a lot of people almost stopped writing about sports. Uh, it, it was terrible. It was the worst. I've watched the Chip Kelly last year in Philadelphia, Andy Reid's last year with the Eagles. That is by far the worst season I've ever seen someone play professional sports in this city. And the people who th- would rather pl- have that would rather have their team have no stakes – would rather fetishize middling prospects of guys who can barely crack rotations, would rather the team not be good, doesn't have the stones to watch a team compete, they don't have a competitive bone in their body, they'd rather sit back and watch their 10-72 and 72 team and jack off about draft prospects and who they're <laughs> going to land in the second round. Those people are cowards. They don't have the stones and you know the confidence to think, let's go for it. Let's win the championship. They can't withstand going for something. They just want to sit back and let life take them. 
That's the fucking loser mentality of somebody who plays sports video games on rookie mode. Yes. That's, that's the sort of person we're talking about here. They so. don't want any like controversy. They don't want any sort of drama. They don't want any sort of adversity in their life. They want to sit back and let life take the wheel for them and just get pulverized by everything in the world. Very uh, beta male energy. It's the Chad, equivalent. Chad's of, like the 2026ers. <laughs> it's the equivalent of there are, like, as a guy who follows European soccer, there are certain players that are small league players like hey we i can beat up on on leon and the the french league and, and whatever but you move them to real madrid or barcelona or one of the big english premier league teams and they have to play under the bright lights and the expectations of, of being a player on a real team instead of playing in like fucking turkey and those guys shrivel that's the sort of mentality you have to have to believe the 10 and 72 season <laughs> was more fun than the one that we were watching unfold. I get that the Sixers are frustrating. I get that we have even talked on this podcast about how it's not often fun to watch this team. But like I had but f- more fun today as a fan watching them win that game in Brooklyn than I had the entirety of that season combined because the entirety of that season combined is a net negative. If you're afraid to have expectations in life, you're not ever going to achieve you're not go- anything you're not doing worth shit achieving. In life. You ain't shit to me. That's what I would say. Yeah. On that note. That Watch how they diff- stay on that side because they ain't switching sides. So apologies to Drew, who I like as a person. I don't know buddy. Drew. I'll say this. I don't know Drew as a person. I only know him from our online personalities. You stay in our ass on Twitter back in the process hour. have not spoken to him in some time. Don't know what he's like in a person. Has never met him in person. His tweets stink. His love for Markel Fultz. Wow. Oh, wow. The fucking smoke. On that note, Seamus. Y'all really going to let Woj hype beast you like that? Oh, oh my God. LMAO. Jesus. Fan in the flames over here. Anyway, thank you, everybody, for sticking around for almost an hour after Seamus and I lost our first podcast recording of the day and still brought that same energy. That's how you know that you should stick around, subscribe, give us some five-star ratings, and check in with us next time. Wednesday is a meeting with the Toronto Raptors and I'm sure there will be nothing eventful that happens in that game. So we'll talk to you soon.